You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. How's everyone doing this morning? Okay, good to have you with us. Um, I think it's still morning, right? It's still morning. Well, Christ is risen. If that's the first time that you're hearing something like that, don't worry about it. I like to think that you're in good hands. Um, but you are welcome to, uh, to uh, um, just worship with us, and thank you for coming out. Um, I know that it's not easy. You probably have family plans, and you want to be some other place, but thank you for choosing to, to be with us this morning and to worship with us. Um, allow me to give you a quick overview of the passage that Chris just read really, really quickly. Um, we have four different accounts that we just kind of read in this long passage, four different stories, if you, if you may, and they all revolve around the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, just in case you haven't heard of this Jesus, I'm sure many of you have, uh, and this is kind of the premise of our passage, but more than that, this is kind of the premise of the whole Bible. This, uh, it's actually not even a book, it's a compilation of manuscripts. It really goes back to thousands of years ago. Uh, but Jesus, he is the son of God, that's what we believe. Uh, God actually created us, every human being that's born on this planet, uh, to be in relationship with him. Uh, and we all said, you know, we will do life without you, God. We will do life without you at the center of it. We got this, but clearly we do not. <laughs> and that right there we call sin, right? So sin, when you think of sin, you may be thinking of, you know, just drugs and, and all of that. But sin, the definition of sin is doing life without God at the center of it. That's called sin. And because of that, we have suffering in the world. And because of that, we have sickness and turmoil, very, very we see that clearly in the, wor in the world. But God didn't just give up on us. He could have easily done that, but even in our rebellion, he sent his son, Jesus, to come to earth, and Jesus came willingly to put on skin and bones and to live a perfect life so that at the end of it, to die in our place, to die for the penalty of our sin, our rebellion, and to bring us back into the presence of God. Now, on the third day, he rose from the dead. And after a few days of showing himself to actually over 500 people, and this is exactly, uh, you know, the premise of our passage. We're going to look at four different accounts, four different vantage points. Uh, then he ascended to heaven, leaving us with this amazing promise that he will come back to take us home, right? And that's the premise. And I know that I may sound like a fairy tale for maybe some of you, but let's just talk about it for the next few minutes. I know that was a mouthful, but just wanted to give you really quickly the premise of, of our text. Obviously, we're not going to go through, you know, all the verses, 53 verses, quite a read, uh, but we're going to go again. We're going to look at four main things, four main points that I believe uh, these four stories kind of show us in regards to the resurrection of Jesus. You guys good? You guys good to go? Yes? Okay. Everyone doing okay? Yes. All right. Good. Um, so I find myself talking about my kids more and more. We got two kids, and, and I may have become one of those annoying parents that talk about their kids all the time. I'm starting to show people pictures, and hey, you know. Uh, anyways, it is what it is. Um, 
I even use them in my sermons. I have done that quite often, you know, especially lately. But two and a half years ago, our oldest, Taya, uh, she was born, and that for me was a life-altering, life-changing historical event. It just was. It just changes you. Uh, because it was something that happened. It was something that I can prove, we can prove it happened, and at the same time, my life changed. My life hasn't been the same since. Now, how can I prove to you that um, what I'm talking about is actual, actually real, that I'm not just one of those weird guys that, hey, I got kids, but in reality, I, have, I don't have kids. <laughs> well, uh, it's, that's not just a figment of my imagination. Well, you can actually meet my daughter after the service if you'd like. That's pretty good proof, right? And, and, and she's here, and that's proof that she's real, and she's not just a spiritual experience or the figment of my imagination. So like it or not, she was born. Like it or not, she's alive. Like it or not, it can be proven. And, and why am I saying this? Why am I saying this? Well, the first point that I like to make from our passage, from our passage that we just, that Chris just read this morning, is that just as my daughter's birth was a, a life-changing, a life-altering historical event for my wife and I and for our family, and here's the big point, the first point, the resurrection of Jesus is a life altering historical event at a much, much greater degree. Now, there are a lot of uh, professors in the, in the academic world that are, I think, polluting so many minds uh, with, with a kind of, I'll just say, misinformation, because we kind of hear that word thrown out a lot. We, we say heresy, but we'll go with misinformation that is easily believed by a lot of people, even Christians, even some Christians believe this. And, and this is what they say, that after the resurrection of Jesus... His, his disciples experienced his presence in a spiritual way, but not necessarily in a physical way. Kind of like, ah, it's just, it was a cute legend, but it didn't really happen. But they really felt his presence among them, right? So, for example, Peter, uh, which is one of, the, one of the great apostles, right? You may have heard this name, experienced forgiveness for, for his denials and failures, because Peter denied Christ three days before he was crucified, right? Um, um, but never really had that conversation with Christ, as we clearly see it in the accounts of the gospel, as we clearly read it in the, in, in, in the Bible. And as time went on, the followers of the disciples now began to find ways of expressing these higher truths and higher spiritual experiences, and they began to express them through stories that symbolically represented these higher truths and higher spiritual experiences in concrete form. So for example, this higher truth, the idea that Peter was forgiven by Christ for his denial, turned into John chapter 21, because this is where we find the story of Jesus having breakfast with Peter, and, and, then, and then he asks Peter, hey, do you love me? And, and the same goes for all the stories of the resurrection. They say they were just symbolic representations of these higher spiritual experiences. It never really happened. It's just a legend that kind of, you know, convey, they convey some good morals. But it didn't really happen. But the reality is that you read through chapter 24, and we just did. And your knee-jerk reaction is to, really? That's not what I'm getting from reading 24. No way. Let's look for ourselves, verse 39, and I hope that you brought your Bible with you. If you didn't, that's fine. We'll have the verses on the screen. Uh, this is Jesus saying, see my hands and my feet, that it, it is myself. Touch me and see. It's, it's as if 
Christ knew what, was, what people were going to say, that, no, 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 they're going to deny my physical resurrection. They're going to just say, ah, it was just some, some, some legend, right? And then he goes, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And then he says in verse 41, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Isn't it wonderful how a higher truth is being symbolically represented here? I'm being super sarcastic. <laughs> well, eating fish and chips with the disciples, what's, what's the higher truth here? I'll tell you what the message is of this text. The message of this text is saying, is Jesus saying, I'm not a symbol. I'm not a legend. I'm not just an impression in your, in your mind. I'm actually here. I'm not just a spiritual experience. I am here in physical form. Give me something to eat. Hey, if you want to write a legend, you don't write legends like that. That's not how you do it. This whole chapter has the marks of an eyewitness account or eyewitness accounts. There are multiple accounts. But let's look quickly at two different proofs when it comes to the resurrection being a real account, not just a figment of our imagination, not just spiritual nonsense, right? Uh, now, by the way, these two proofs that I'm going to quickly go through, we find here in our passage. Now, you can find a ton more if you go outside of our passage, and I challenge you to do so. If you want to just do a little bit of research, you can find actually the historicity of the resurrection. But let's just, let's just go with two really quickly that we see in our passage. If we look at verses 1 to 12, right at the beginning of our passage that Chris just read, the initial witnesses to the empty tomb were who? A bunch of women. Now, you may have heard this before, but women in that time had low status. They still do in some parts of the world. But in that part of the world, oh, yeah, low status. That meant that their testimony was not admissible evidence in, in, in courts, neither you know, in Jewish court or Roman courts. And therefore, if you're making up a story, if you're making up a legend about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you would never put women there as the first initial eyewitness. Why would you do that? It would hurt your account. You would absolutely do nothing to your account. It would actually undermine the plausibility of your account. It would actually hurt you in front of your readers and listeners. So the only reason why Luke, the author of this book, writes about it is if the women really were eyewitness accounts. There was no other motivation to put them there. Now, really quickly, uh, a second proof, another proof for the historicity of the resurrection that we see here in our text. We see it right at the end of our passage. So if you want to follow with me, go right at the end of the passage. Verse 52 says, And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Now, as you probably know, the Gospels, the Gospel accounts were written uh, in the lifetime of many of the eyewitnesses, right? This is, we're talking about 2,000 years ago, and most of them were Jewish. They were Jewish people. And also, Jewish people, just so you know, were the last people on the face of the planet that were open to the idea that a human being could be God. Remember, we said that Jesus is the Son of God that became human, right? They were the last people on the face of the planet to actually worship a God-man, a man. They had a paradigm. They had a worldview. They couldn't even say the name of God out loud. They, even today, some of them, they say G-D. They can't even say it, right? They are the last people on the face of the earth, and we know that almost immediately they were worshiping a man, the God-man, Jesus. How, how did that happen? 
like just in a matter of like overnight. It didn't happen slowly over time, that's for sure, in a way where truth is lost on you over generations. It didn't happen like that, no. It happened all of a sudden. Something must have shattered their worldview and paradigm. Something must have happened and their lives completely changed. Do you know what happened? They saw him. They saw Jesus. They saw Jesus rose from the dead. Now, here's the point. The resurrection was not preached or talked about in the early church in that time as a symbolic representation of some wonderful higher spiritual experiences, right, that, that kind of conveys some good morals, like, yeah, we got to be nice and we got to do this. And the resurrection was preached and talked about as a hard and terribly irritating, paradigm-shifting, life-altering, and impossible-to-dismiss fact and reality well you know what facts are like right uh this podium is here right there's a podium here there's a there's a stand well, that's a fact i may not like it well i wish it wasn't here but it's here what am i going to do about it it's here i can touch it right i have to accept it because it's fact it's reality there's no getting around it there's no me saying, well, I don't feel like it's here. No, 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 it's here. I can touch it. We can all see it, right? But this, is, this isn't how our culture works today. It isn't. Our culture works on likes and dislikes on Facebook and Instagram. And I like this. I don't like this. So if I don't like this, that may not be true. It may not be true for me. It may be true for you, but not for me. It, it, that's, it doesn't work like that. It's messed up. It does, it does not work like that. Now, let me share with you a perfect example of this. Here's Apostle Paul, another great apostle, follower of Christ. Now, Apostle Paul was a super religious guy. He went to the temple all the time. He knew his scriptures, right, that they had in that time. Uh, now, he's a super religious guy who God used and inspired to write two-thirds of the New Testament. That's a huge chunk of the Bible. But before Paul had an encounter, right, with the resurrected Jesus, he actually saw him, and his life was completely changed, he was actually offended by Christianity, by the message of the gospel. He was offended by the idea that you don't need a temple anymore, that you don't need animal sacrifices to atone, to forgive your sin. This would have been outrageous to him. And when he saw Jesus raised from the dead, his likes and dislikes did not matter anymore because it was a fact. It was reality, right? You know what? We should be more sympathetic, I believe, to our skeptical friends. We should. The resurrection makes Christianity the most irritating religion on the face of the planet, or it should. Have you met people that say, oh, I could never be a Christian because so many parts of the Bible offend me. I dislike so many parts. That means that it's not, not true. It's not real. No, it's not for me. I can never be a Christian. People are offended by so many parts of the Bible. People are offended of, you know, what the Bible has to say about sex and about money and about family, about morality, about salvation, and so on and so forth. And they say, I could never be a Christian because so many parts of the Bible offend me, and I dislike that. No, thank you. If that's you, with all due respect, with all the love in the world, let me ask you this. Are you saying that just because there are parts in the Bible that offend you that, you, that you dislike, are you saying that Jesus Christ couldn't have been raised from the dead? Is that what we're saying? Because I think that if we're all honest, we would say, well, I guess I'm not really saying that. 
See, every part of the Bible is important. But for a moment, would you, let's just put the ethical side, uh, you know, aside for a moment, the, the, the ethical teaching aside for a minute. And, and let's, let me just ask this. If Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, you're going to have to deal with everything else from the Bible. You are. You may be dealing with God there, you know, here, just saying, just saying. If, if he got the resurrection right, he probably got everything else right. He's probably God. Now, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then I don't know why we're stressing ourselves over it, right? Now, the fact of the matter is that this apostle Paul was much more offended by the gospel than all of us together. He was so offended by, by this new message of the cross, Jesus dying on a cross and resurrecting to bring us to a new life, that he was actually killing Christians. He was persecuting Christians. And by the way, we'd never advise that. But when he realized that Jesus had been raised, it didn't matter what offended him anymore. It didn't matter because it was true. It was a fact. It was reality. And we have to keep that in mind, folks, that the resurrection was a life, altering a life-changing historical event so that's the first point now the second point not only the resurrection is a life-altering historical event but the resurrection is the key to understanding all of the bible all of scripture it starts at the very beginning when the angels say to the women in verse 6 he is not here but has risen or remember how he told you while he was still in galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And in verse 8, he says, and they remembered his words. They remembered his words. Now check this out. In light of the resurrection, they remembered Jesus' words. In light of the resurrection, Jesus' words don't seem that crazy anymore. It kind of like, whoa, we look at the Bible now in light of what just happened and it's kind of opening up to us. We're kind of understanding it. They don't seem that crazy anymore. What Jesus was saying, what was telling us. Here's the point. The resurrection paired with the cross makes the cross make sense and opens up all the scriptures, opens up the Bible. Now, Paul, the Pharisee, the good religious moral guy, would have been super offended at this. Just think about it. He must have thought, all of this makes absolutely no sense because the Messiah, the person that we're waiting for, God, right, to save us, would be pleased by God and blessed by God and loved by God and accompanied by God, but he just let him die on a cross, crucified. But what's, what's up with that? And this guy, Jesus, claims to be the Son of God, claims to supposedly, you know, take our sin, the, the sin of the world, on his shoulders and die for the people because, because of that, he was cursed by God and abandoned by God. This makes no sense. He must have thought, what kind of fool do you take me for? What kind of salvation a Messiah that dies on a cross could bring to us? And then he saw Jesus risen. <laughs> oh, that changed everything. He saw him resurrected. Wait a minute. If he was raised from the dead, and he was, then, then that means that God vindicated him. That means that God loved him, actually, and did not abandon him, and he was pleased with him. That means that God loves him because he resurrected him. But wait a minute. If God loves him and is pleased with him, then he was probably cursed and abandoned for someone else's sins. 
not his own. And suddenly, he turns to the rest of the Bible because you know that Paul knew scriptures inside out, but not from the vantage point of the resurrection. He must have thought, wait a minute. What if our sacrificing of animals that we do every year, you know, to atone for our sins, the sacrificial system was pointing us to someone else? What if Jesus is the Lamb of God that took the sin of the world on his shoulders? Oh, if Jesus, then this makes sense. Then if Jesus resurrected, then, then this makes sense. Once he understood the resurrection, he understood the cross, and once he understood the cross and the resurrection together, which is the gospel, he looked back and the whole Bible just opened up. What Jesus is doing here is constantly opening their minds to the Bible, to scriptures. Verse 32, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? How beautiful is that? And God still does that. God still opens eyes. And I hope he does that today too. Now here's a quick application point for us. If the resurrection and the cross are the very center of scriptures, then, then the Bible, scriptures, is all about Jesus then. And it is. So if you're going to explain and talk about the Bible with anyone, make sure that you explain how Jesus is connected to that very passage that you're describing. Explain how every plot line, how every story, every instruction, command right, converges and meets and leads to Jesus Christ. All of our getting together, all of our preaching and walking through biblical texts and Bible studying, if it doesn't lead us to love Jesus more and follow Jesus with more passion and hunger, all is done for nothing. Your understanding of the Bible, my understanding of the Bible, is only as good as the clarity with which you see the gospel in it, the cross and the resurrection. And at the same time, the fruit that it brings in your life, the results, if you may, that it brings in your life. Do you look more like Jesus as you read about Jesus in scriptures? Because if you don't, if I don't, then I'm not, my faith is not real. Is there a growing love in my heart as I read about Christ? Is there a growing love in my heart for him? Is there, you know, a growing pattern of freedom from sin in my life? Can I, can I analyze my life? Is that true? Am I more patient with my kids? Do I love my wife more and more? And, and are you, am I more self-controlled? That's what I'm talking about. Is it making an impact in your life as you're reading about Jesus in scriptures? So the resurrection is a, a life-altering historical event. And then number two, the resurrection is the key to understanding all of the Bible. And now number three, and they're getting shorter and shorter, by the way. And just give me one second, my shoelaces are untied here. Everyone doing okay still? You're doing good? Okay. Now the third point is the resurrection is a powerful message to the world. A powerful message to the world. Another interesting thing about this whole chapter is that as soon as someone finds out about the resurrection, they take it to somebody else. They go and tell people. They, they just can't sit on this message. Verse 9, just look at it. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Same thing happened to the other account on the, the, those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Chris just read it. Verse 33, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 in verse 35. Then they told what had happened on the road. Knowing 
about the resurrection gives you the most powerful message to take to the world. The most powerful message. Now, I'm not saying that the message of the resurrection by itself, no, 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 paired with the cross because that's the gospel. That's what we're talking about here. The whole gospel is the powerful, the most powerful message we could, uh, we are taking, we ought to be taking to the world. If you go through the book of Acts, now it's a different book in the New Testament. Um, it's just amazing how the resurrection dominates the preaching of these two apostles, Peter and Paul. Now, the early preachers could not stop talking about the resurrection. They just couldn't stop talking about it. When we think about, you know, even the early church and people 2,000 years ago, how they preached the gospel, how they talked about the resurrection, right, in the, uh, in the cross. And when we think about how the world of that time responded, responded, to, you know, to, to this powerful message, one of the more interesting questions is, how was Christianity... How was it able that in two to three generations to completely displace and supersede the incredible classical culture of the Greco-Roman world? Two to three centuries, that's it. And Christianity just took over. I mean, the Greco-Roman classical culture was astounding. That's why we even, even now we study the Greek philosophers today. Why? Because they're brilliant. Some actually say that all Western thought is, a, is just a series of footnotes on Plato. Right, because they were that may be an exaggeration, but it just shows you, uh, you know, how brilliant these guys were. Then, how was it possible that within two to three generations, the people turned away from their religions, they turned away from their idols, they turned away from from whatever, you know, uh, from this classical culture and embraced Christianity in two to three generations? How did it happen? What's well, always interesting when you find a historian, or I guess any writer that is not a Christian, not a Christian, right, who can give you an answer, an explanation of that. Do you know what they say? So not Christians, it's not what secular historians, secular writers say this. You know what the reason for that? They would say that it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. <laughs> that's, that's so crazy. They would say that the resurrection was so unique. The resurrection was something that nobody had ever heard up until that point. It was the kind of message that was never heard before. When it broke out on the populace, right, of the Greco-Roman world, it was like nothing people had ever seen or heard or ever known. And the reason, you know what the reason for that? The reason is that it gave people hope for the future. It gave people hope for the future. Because even though life can present itself with some pretty terrible circumstances, right? Am I right? Am I right? For those that are in Christ, the best is yet to come, meaning life for an eternity with Christ. And interestingly enough, it does the same thing today. It gives people hope for the future. Now, Apostle Paul says this in a different part of the Bible, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. How powerful is that so it gives us hope for the future the resurrection gives us hope for the future allow me to list a few amazing reasons really quickly of why the resurrection gives us hope for the future now the future meaning what, what do i mean by that i mean heaven i mean our eternal home life after life 
I, I, I kind of say this, but this life right here, 80, 90 years, 100 years, is just the nine months in the womb. We haven't even lived. That's life. That's what I'm referring to. That's, that's the future that I, we're referring to today. One of the great Greek philosophers believed that when you die, that was it. That was it. You're gone. Therefore, don't be afraid of death because there's no sensation, no emotions. There's nothing. There's no reason to be afraid. And the first reason that I want to bring to you why the resurrection gives hope for the future is that it's real. It's real. It's real. And, and, and this Greek philosopher said that, no, 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 don't be afraid because when you die, you're not going to feel anything. Don't worry about it. You're not going to remember anything. So pff, who cares? But if you talked to the witness of the resurrection, anyone that saw Christ, if you talked to one of those eyewitnesses and, and you saw their changed life, and even the generations afterwards, finally you knew that you were not just dust in the wind. You knew that, that you were not just, you know, a stone that would sink to the bottom and that's it. You would realize that there really is a future. And it's real. It's more real than this life. It's real and we're headed towards it, like it or not. A real eternal home to live with God forever. Now, not only that is real, so again, we're giving reasons why the resurrection gives us hope. So not only that it's real, but another reason why the resurrection gives us incredible hope for the future, it's because it's personal. Not only real, but it's personal. The Stoics were kind of like Eastern philosophers, and they would say that when you die, you still continue to exist, but not as your personal self. Right? But, but, but you become part of the universe, you become part of the substance of the world. We have a lot of, uh, you know, religion that kind of says that. We call them universalism, right? Just all roads lead to Rome, and it doesn't really matter, you know, in the end, because you're going to be part of the universe somehow. So, so go on then. There's no reason to be afraid of death. Just like Lion King, you become, you know, you're, 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 you become part of the circle of life. You become the fertilizer, and out of that, you know, grow plants and so on and so forth. So again, there's no reason for any of us to be afraid of death. Really? I, let's be honest. Aside from the Holy Spirit revealing to us Jesus Christ and how all along He was our deepest desire, but we just didn't know that. That aside... The deepest desire of the human heart that we can see is that we want to be loved and we want to be with our loved ones. Isn't that true? The deepest desire. And we fight for that. And the one thing that we don't want is to lose that. And you're going to tell me that when you die, everything that matters to you will be stripped away from you. Death eventually will take your loved ones away or it will take you from your loved ones. And you're saying that, that, that that's nothing to be afraid of? Oh, no, because when I die, I become one with the universe, and you don't feel anything, so what, why does it matter? Because it's not really you. You're, you're not going to be your personal self anyways. Why does it matter? But Jesus shows up in the resurrected form and says, it is me. It is I myself. Look at me. Look at the wounds. It's me. Your future is personal. I don't care who you are. Your, your future is personal. That's the only thing that will satisfy the human heart. So what I'm actually saying is that Jesus died for you personally on the cross to forgive your sin. He made it personal. 
And then he resurrected so that he could bring you personally to a new life and to secure a future for you personally with him in eternity. Please don't tell me you're not afraid of death if you don't believe in a resurrection. I know it's too brutal to be honest. I know. So the resurrection tells us that the future is real and it's personal. And then a third one that I just love, it's certain. It's for sure, man. You can know for sure. Now, what good is it to be told there's a future where love is without parting and that you are your personal self and your loved ones are the same, but you just don't know for sure if you're going to get there or not? What good is it? <laughs> you know, well, no thank you. What if I were to tell you that your future is certain and available through Jesus Christ? The only way. That you will never be parted from the love of the Father. And on top of that, the love of your loved ones if they accept Christ as well. It doesn't console you if you're not sure of it, does it? It doesn't do anything to you if you don't know for sure, does it? Martin Luther said this, and I quote, Suffering is intolerable if you're not sure of your salvation. Just think about that. Because, man, I'm, I'm going nowhere. This is it. This is, this is what I got. Seven years, 50 years. And if this, is, if this is full of suffering, then it's just, it really, really sucks, for a lack of a better word. Uh, unless you are sure that in spite of, your, of all of your flaws, unless you're sure that in spite of all of your struggles and shortcomings and insecurities and sin, that he is not giving up on you, that Jesus is with you, suffering is intolerable. If you're not sure that he'll hold on to you, that there's a certain future with him, but you can be certain, you can be for sure. Why? Because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, let me explain through an analogy. If someone goes to prison because, they, uh, because the law says that, hey, 10 years in prison is the penalty, the punishment for this crime that you committed. Now, the day that person comes out of prison, it means that the penalty and the punishment has been paid for. The law has no more claim on that person. The person has served the required punishment for that particular crime. It's paid for. It's dealt with. Well, in the same way, Jesus Christ took our place on the cross, dying for our sin. Because the wages of sin is death. He was paying for the wages of all of our sin. And when he came out of that grave, coming out of the prison, he came out of that grave, that's exactly how you know that the price was paid. The resurrection is proof that it was paid. The resurrection is a giant receipt stamped across the universe for all history to see, for all people to see that you can know for sure that your future is certain if you believe in Jesus Christ. But not only that, I got one more. So not only it gives us hope because, because it's real, not only it gives us hope because it's, it's personal, and then, and then, you know, what was the last one? <laughs> that it's, wow, I'm just forgetting it. <laughs> someone, someone yell it out. Let's see if you guys know. There we go. It's certain. There we go. But the last reason is this. It's unimaginably wonderful. And beautiful. Do you ever catch yourself reminisce and ponder on the good old days? Like, ah, oh, remember 10 years ago and this and that and we had this and we had a lot more joy and all remember that. There's something called the irreversibility of life. When things are gone, they're gone forever. It's seemingly irretrievable, right? When you're young and then you get old and it's, it seems that your youth is forever gone. You can't get it back. 
And now the older you get, it just can, it can suck the life out of you. It can suck the joy out of life. Because when we lose something here on earth, it feels that it's just lost forever. Do you realize what the resurrection is? Even religions that promise you, not too many do, but the ones that do, that promise you some kind of spiritual future, that spiritual future is only consolation for what you lost here on earth. That's it. That's the best they can do. But the resurrection is restoration of what you've lost and a ton more on top of that. You don't just get your body back, but you get a resurrected body that you've never dreamt of having, right? And you're going to get it for an eternity. You get the body that you always wanted and you never had. You don't just get your life back, but you get the best life. A life that you can never think of and fathom. And actually much more on top of that. I'm sure you do. I do as well. We all have faithful Christian friends that are really suffering in this life. And then you just kind of sit back and like, dude, these guys are suffering so much. It's like their life is full of trials. Like they just lost their son. Two years, man, they just lost their parents and, and lost another son and, 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 and just so on and so forth. Do you know what the resurrection is? Jesus Christ is walking proof that they will miss absolutely nothing in this life. Or that they have missed nothing in this life. No matter how worse it gets, how, how horrible it gets. What about people that are locked in bad marriages and they're barely keeping it together? Or the fact that so many couples... They, can't, they still can't have kids, but they're faithful children of God, some may say. Well, I guess they'll have to miss this beautiful and sanctifying experience forever. They really missed the boat on that one. Sorry, man. No. The resurrection means you are going to miss absolutely nothing. Jesus Christ is walking proof that they will miss nothing, and it's all coming. And I think it's coming sooner than we think, and it's going to be unimaginably beautiful and wonderful. But do you know why our future is unimaginably wonderful and beautiful? Because we will be with Jesus for an eternity. I know I've said this a few times, but it's too perfect for a setup not to do it again. Jonathan Edwards said this, and I quote, When we get to see Jesus face to face, we will wonder if we ever lived before. In a matter of a, of a moment, of a snap of a finger, Everything that was bad in your life, in this life, everything that was sad, and it will be undone in a, in, a, in a snap of a finger when you see Jesus Christ. How amazing is that? There's going to be a wedding feast, a real wine, real people, your wedding feast, nothing like it in the whole universe. It will blow your mind away. Listen, I want to be so honest with you this morning. There's no religion in the world. There's no philosophy, no ideology that ever offered the world this kind of future. A future that is real, that is personal, that is certain, that's unimaginably wonderful and beautiful. There isn't a more powerful and beautiful message possible in the universe. And it's based on the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, don't you want that? Don't you want that? Why wouldn't you want that? With all the respect, why wouldn't you want that? And here's the last point. Again, a recap. The three things that we looked at, the resurrection, is a life-altering historical event 
and the resurrection is the key to understanding all of scriptures. Number three, the resurrection is the most powerful message that we can take to the world. And number four, and we're ending with this, Jesus says, I'm the true king. I am the true king. Twice Jesus calls himself the Messiah in our passage. Verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Isn't it interesting that Jesus refers to himself not, not using I, but refers to himself as the Messiah. The Messiah, I'll translate it. Messiah means the anointed one, the king, the one that we were waiting for to save us. That's basically how he goes out. I am the true king. See you later. I am, the, and he just, boom, mic drop. In 1970 in Philadelphia, during the revolution, there was a, a huge sign on top of a tavern that said, we serve no sovereign here. We serve no sovereign here. Sadly, we don't have a sense of sovereignty here in America, in our country. Even Canadians and Australians, and I think Europeans, to some extent, they have a positive memory of bowing a knee or bowing the knee. Asians come from a different place, but they probably see the benefits of respecting authority more than we do in our country. But here in America, we don't have a sense of sovereignty. We don't bow the knee to anyone. I guess that can be a good thing and a bad thing, right? But this is what we say. I'm an individual, and I decide what's right and wrong for me. No one tells me otherwise. And ironically, we all bow the knee to someone or something. We do. We bow the knee to our comfort. We bow the knee to our luxuries, and we bow the knee to our cute little kingdoms that we're trying to build down here, and we're trying to preserve so much. Let me read you another passage from Scripture. This is in Philippians, the New Testament, chapter 2, nine and, verses 9 and 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You either acknowledge Jesus as the true king now and bow your knee willingly and joyfully and happily because you understand and believe what he's done for you at the cross, or you will bow your knee with the rest of the world unwillingly and forcefully but, but do you know, if you want to bow your knee now, do you know how you start bowing your knee here and now? You turn away from your sin. And that doesn't mean that you're, you know, you got to just wait and get your life in order. No, 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 you're never going to be able to do that. No, just come as you are. But you turn away from your sin. Look to Christ. He's the solution, right? He is, and, and, and make him the center of your life, right? We, we said that that's the definition of sin, not having God at the center of your life. Right? And then you fully surrender your life to him by believing in him, by believing in what he's done for you at the cross, and then believing that he's got a new life for you, a life walking with him. That's what it means to bow your knees here, bow your knee now and here to Jesus Christ. One last portion of scripture, and we'll end. Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you restless? I know I am. So many times. But I know, I know where to go. Jesus says, come to me. You know, we carry so much crap. Excuse my French. We carry so much guilt and shame and insecurities. We carry so much luggage that we're not meant to carry. But more than anything, we carry the weight 
of eternal damnation. A future, yeah, a future personal and real and certain, but not with Christ. And Jesus says, come to me. He says, come to me. He invites those who have deliberately hated him their entire life. And he invites those who have quietly rejected him. He invites all. It doesn't matter where we come from. It doesn't matter how much we messed up our life. It does not matter. What matters is that we would come to him. But we all have the same problem. And that problem is sin. It doesn't matter if you're raised in church or if you're on drugs your whole life. It does not matter. We all have the same problem, sin. We've done life without God at the center of it. Right? And we all have the same remedy. This is the great news. The Savior who came and lived and died for us so that we don't have to die. And then resurrect us so that he could bring us to a new life. We have the same problem. And we have the same remedy. Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me? I'd like to just pray for us this morning. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.